morning, how are you? Um, for those of you who um, were able to watch that short clip um, of Dr. Brene Brown, she's basically the expert, if you can call her that, on shame. And so she has for over a decade researched um, the social, uh, you know, the human experience and behavior of shame. And she gave this talk back in 2010 on the power of vulnerability. And she talked about how um, as she was, you know, as a graduate student, she was really interested in human experience and emotion and behavior. And she wanted to know, well, what, what brings us together? What makes us feel connected? Because that's something that, you know, drives us. But what she found was that everyone was telling her stories, not of connectedness, because when she asked her, when did you feel like you belonged? But people would say, well, this is when I didn't feel like I belonged. And so she found that people were telling her stories of disconnection. And so while she was studying, you know, connection, she got to disconnection. And ultimately, at the core of it all, she found shame. Um, and so in her TED Talk in 2010, she shared kind of about how um, shame, the, the effects of shame, but how vulnerability has the power to be the antidote to shame. How, as she was saying in that clip with the interview with Oprah, how um, as you share your story and you, and you share what you've been through, that having empathy on the other end of it gets rid of the shame. And so in her TED Talk, she encouraged people to be vulnerable. And then she herself was vulnerable and shared how during her research, she realized that you know, her whole life, she's very controlling and wants, you know, puts everything in boxes and you know, wants everything to be figured out and have solutions. Um, and so kind of had a crisis herself of realizing that she had a lot to work through. So she shared about her breakdown. But it's interesting because um, after she shared her TED Talk, you know, it was in Houston, she went home and she was like, oh no, what have I done? This is going to be on YouTube. People are going to watch it. I've just shared so much of myself. And she called, um, she says she had the worst vulnerability hangover in her life. Um, she was so ashamed of having shared so much of herself that she didn't leave the house for three days. Um, and she later on had a talk, another TED talk um, called Listening to Shame, where she shared that experience. But it's funny because she thought to herself, what if over a thousand people watch this video? Well, guess what? Over 32 million people have watched this video. This is one of the top 10 TED Talks um, of all time. And so if you haven't seen it already, I do recommend that you watch it. It's, it's quite um, a powerful, and she's very funny, so it's quite a good TED Talk about the power of vulnerability. But I want to tell you a little bit about what she talks about, not just in this TED Talks, but in her book, um, and just overall um, based on her research on shame. She, she shares how um, shame... Let me see if I can get it. Uh, you might have seen it in the clip, but she says that the ingredients for shame, that if you put these three things in a Petri dish, secrecy, silence, and judgment, that's where shame exponentially grows. And then she says the antidote to that, right, what, what offsets and heals our shame is when we have the courage to be vulnerable, right, sharing what we are going through, what we're struggling with, what we have been through, what we're afraid of, and then having com compassion and empathy for each other. She says, the moment when someone says, me too, right? Those healing words, me too, all of a sudden get rid of the shame and you're like, oh, I'm not alone. And a lot of the shame is that feeling of, I'm the only one struggling with this. I'm the only one who feels this way. 
and of course, connection and a sense of belonging. She says, uh, this is how she defines shame. She says there are a couple of very helpful ways to think about shame. First, shame is the fear of disconnection. We are psychologically, emotionally, cognitively, and spiritually hardwired for connection, love, and belonging. Connection along with love and belonging, two expressions of connection, is why we are here and is what gives us purpose and meaning to our lives. Shame is the fear of disconnection. It's the fear that something we've done or failed to do, an ideal that we've not lived up to, or a goal that we've not accomplished, makes us unworthy of connection. I'm not worthy or good enough for love, belonging, or connection. I'm unlovable. I don't belong. Here's a definition of shame that emerged from my research. Shame is the intensely painful experience or feeling of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love or, and belonging. She talks about how shame is universal. You know, sometimes we think that you only kind of feel shame if something really traumatic has happened to you, like sexual abuse or, um, you know, you, you um, stole someone's money or you cheated on your partner. Or, you know, we, we sometimes think that that's when shame happens. But she, in her research, she's found that shame is actually something that we all experience um, and that it's, it's across cultures, it's across generations, and it could be something that's very kind of um, insidious and lurking in the, in the tiny corners of our minds. You know, something as simple as, you know, there's 12 different categories that she identified, but something, for example, as body image, right? The shame that, you know, that you can't fit into your clothes. The shame if someone asks you if you're pregnant when you're not, right? The shame of being laid off your job. The shame of not having made the promotion. Um, the shame of not having as much as your neighbors, right? The shame of not um, making it, you know, in that, in that exam or um, into that school or, right? All these things in our lives where we experience um, disappointment or what we call failure um, or when we feel like we didn't quite live up to our own expectations or someone else's expectations, that's when we feel shame. And shame is different from guilt. Guilt is feeling bad about something we've done. Um, and it can actually be very constructive. Guilt can lead us to confession, restoration, reconciliation, and ultimately righteousness. Guilt actually leads us to God. Guilt says, I did something bad. I need to be forgiven. But shame says, I did something bad. I am bad. I am bad. Shame says, I am bad, therefore, I don't deserve to be forgiven. I don't deserve to be loved. I don't deserve to be accepted. And so then what shame makes us do is it makes us hide from God. It makes us isolate ourselves from other people because we feel like we need to kind of punish ourselves. And so we kind of go into this cycle. And because we don't like talking about shame or thinking about shame, Dr. Uh, Brene Brown found that we numb we go into that numbing stage. Um, but here's the problem. She says, you cannot selectively numb emotion. You can't say, here's the bad stuff. Here's vulnerability. Here's grief. Here's shame. Here's fear. Here's disappointment. I don't want to feel those things, so I'm going to have a couple of beers and a banana nut muffin. You can't numb those hard feelings without numbing the other effects, our emotions. You cannot selectively numb. So when we numb those, we numb joy, we numb gratitude, we numb happiness. And then we are miserable, and then we are looking for purpose and meaning, and then we feel vulnerable. So then we have a couple of beers and a banana nut muffin, and it becomes a dangerous cycle.
and you can substitute that with whatever it is that you fill it with when you're trying to numb yourself. And we get stuck in that cycle because the more you kind of numb yourself and try to, to um, you know, not deal with that feeling of shame, right? The more we get trapped in that suffocating cycle of silence, secrecy, self-loathing. And the truth is we might function really well outside, right? We might still be doing really well in our jobs. We might still have wonderful relationships. And so from the outside, it looks like we're perfectly all right. But then in the deepest recesses of our minds and hearts, there is this block. There is this disconnect where we are, are shutting that door to experiencing God and connecting with others and ourselves on a deeper level. So how do we break that cycle? How do we unblock those things that are keeping us from being able to experience true connection with God, others, and ourselves? Dr. Brene Brown, um, after a decade of research, asked herself, okay, she found in her research there were two groups of people, those who struggled, right, their whole lives to find worth, right, and so always struggled with shame. And then there were a group of people who had a strong sense of worth and belonging. And so were able to, you know, feel the shame, deal with it, move on. And so she asked herself, okay, well, what's the difference between these two groups, why is this group um, able to handle the shame? Why is this group able to, to heal from it? And this is what she found. She found that the group of people who break free from the shackling effects of shame had courage to be imperfect. They had the compassion to be kind to themselves first and then to others because, as it turns out, we can't practice compassion with other people if we can't treat ourselves kindly. And the last was that they had connection. And this was the hard part. As a result of authenticity, they were willing to let go of who they thought they should be in order to be who they were, which you have to do absolutely for that connection. So they were able to have the courage to say, yep, I'm not perfect. This is who I am. This is how I, I, I messed up. Or this, is, this is the thing that I struggle with. But they also had, had the compassion to be kind to themselves and others. And therefore, they were able to connect, and they had a strong sense of worth. They knew what it felt like to be fully known and yet fully loved. To be able to tell their story and to be told, me too. How can we find such authenticity? Does such unconditional love and empathy exist? And my answer is yes and yes. And yes, one day a group of judgmental hypocrites were gossiping to each other. They said, did you see who Jesus had lunch with the other day? Losers and rejects. The guy who wasn't smart or savvy enough to get into a better school. That guy who was laid off. That woman who had stepped, slept around but is still alone. That homeless man. That crazy girl. That convict. That liar. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts and their hearts, caught them off guard by telling them, turning to them, and he didn't scold, he didn't call them out. He just turned to them and started telling them three stories. And I won't read you the first two. You can find it in Luke chapter 15. But I want to read to you the third story. In Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 25. He said, a man had two sons. 
The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept through the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. This young man had shuffled home in shame and fear. You see, when he asked his father for his share of the inheritance, he basically forced his father to sell his estate early before his death. He was basically saying, I wish you were dead now because I want my inheritance now. So his father had sold his estate, divided it in, in you know, he's the younger son, so in that time, that meant he gets one third. The older brother got the double portion. So then his father gave him that and off he went. And perhaps he had said to himself, I'm going to show them what I can do with this money. I'm going to show them. I don't want to be a farmer for the rest of my life. But he wasted it all. So can you imagine as he shuffled home, not only had he nothing to show for, but he had basically obliterated one-third of his father's inherit of his father's estate. He was in tattered clothes. He had no more shoes. He looked terrible. But desperation drove him home, and he's practicing this speech in his mind of what he's going to tell his father, how he's going to beg for his mercy, knowing that he was unworthy. But he doesn't even get to finish his speech because the moment the father sees the son, you know, in Middle Eastern culture, it's actually shameful for a man to run. Grown-ups don't run, right? You, you're dignified and you carry yourself with dignity. But when the father sees the son, the text says that he ran. So he ran. And he embraced his son. And he held him tight. And the son begins to, you know, to, to speak his prepared speech, but the father cups him off, right? He said, I'm, I'm unworthy to be called. And the father says, quick, bring out the best robes. Bring out the jewels. Bring out the sandals. Bring out the fatted calf. We're going to celebrate. You know, in Middle Eastern culture, as with a lot of other cultures, um, if someone in the family disgraces the family, it disgraces the whole community. You don't talk about it, right? 
You definitely don't throw a party and celebrate the person who disgraced the whole community. But the father looks at the son and is not thinking about what he has done or not done. The father simply thinks to himself, my son is home. And my son is worthy of a party. Simply because he's my son. You know, so many times we define ourselves by our success. How well we climb our careers. How much financial security we can build. How much we can multitask and juggle. And all those expectations that others place on us and that we place on ourselves build not just pressure, but a false picture of our worth. We feel really worthy when things are going well, but when we lose that job or fail that investment or end that relationship or break that promise, our feeling of worth plummets and we feel ashamed. But God looks at us as worthy, not because of our achievements or our actions or even our characters, but simply because he loves us as his sons and daughters. It doesn't matter if you are like Nicodemus, an established leader and elder who secretly don't feel connected to God and wonder what you're missing out on, but you're too ashamed to admit it. Nicodemus came to Jesus in the night. Or if you're like the rich young ruler with his rising career who publicly declared he wanted to follow Jesus, but when asked to put Jesus and others first above his ambition, shamefully hung his head and walked away. Or if you're like, or if you're like the Samaritan woman who went to the well in the heat of the day to avoid contact with the others because she was ashamed of never feeling good enough. Or like Peter who denied Jesus three times because he was afraid to be arrested like Jesus but then in shame heard the rooster crow and know that he had betrayed him. You see, no matter what you have done, no matter what others think of you or what you think of yourself, God thinks that you are absolutely worthy of love and acceptance. And that's why he came as a baby. You know, he's the only one who chose who he, what family he was born to and in what manner he came. And he chose to be born into a poor family, a poor blended family. He chose to be born in a smelly, dirty barn. And he chose to be laid in a manger, the kind of manger that the young man in the story that Jesus told later where, where the pigs were eating out of, right? That kind of manger was his crib. That was his cot. Because I think Jesus wanted to show us he was willing to be vulnerable. Vulnerable to disease, vulnerable to death, vulnerable to all the difficulties that life can throw at us. That he made himself vulnerable. And that there is no human heart too dirty, too smelly for Jesus to be born in. There is no darkness that Jesus cannot penetrate. And there is no place too humble for Jesus to come. He wanted to show that he could conquer through his vulnerability, disease, death, and shame, not by being private and perfect and polished, but by being bruised, by being different, by being human, by being someone who could hold a little child's lonely hand and say, me too, by being someone who could hear a woman's silent cry and say, me too, by being someone who could look into a man's fearful eyes and say, me too. 
too. And calling that child his child and calling that woman his daughter and calling that man his son. When Jesus loves, he loves absolutely enough to die for and run for and wrap his arms around for, to cover our shame, to turn it into glory, and to welcome us home. Jesus quoted this passage in Isaiah as his mission statement. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come, and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, a festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. You will be called priests of the Lord, ministers of our God. You will feed on the treasures of the nations and boast in their riches. Instead of shame and dishonor, you will enjoy a double share of honor. You will possess a double portion of prosperity in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. I am like a bridegroom dressed for his wedding or a bride with her jewels. The sovereign Lord will show his justice to the nations of the world. Everyone will praise him. His righteousness will be like a garden in early spring with plants springing up everywhere. This was Jesus' mission statement. He took this on and he said, I have come to take your shame and turn it into glory. I have come to cover your nakedness, to cover the, the feeling of, of feeling exposed and vulnerable and, and hating that. I have come to clothe you with salvation and protection and security and love and belonging so that you can have the confidence to go out and be who I have created you to be. There's a song by John Legend that says, all of me loves all of you, all your curves and all your edges, all your perfect imperfections. I'm sure you've heard it many times <laughs> on the radio, everywhere you go, right? There's a reason why that song is so popular because we all want to be loved and to love like that, right? To, for someone to say, you know what? I love you just the way you are. I love everything about you. And for someone to say, and, and I want you to love me like that, right? We all are created to have that kind of intimacy where we are unconditionally uncondition accepted, where we belong. And the truth is, we have that longing in our hearts because God created us to have that kind of a loving relationship with him. He did give his all to us. He risked heaven and earth to come as that vulnerable little baby, and he risked heaven and earth to die for us. He loves us just as we are. The Bible says that God loved us while we were still sinners. That means there's nothing you can do or not do that will take away or diminish the amount of love that God has for you. He loves you just the way you are. And there's nothing you can do that can change that. The kind of love that he gives us is not based on certainty and facts all the time, but is on trust and faith and hope. The kind of love that is authentic, where you can pray to him and tell him your true thoughts and feelings without masks, without filters. The kind of love that is based on gratitude and joy and rest and song and worship.
And that's the foundation on which the entire Christian experience rests. Once we feel secure that we have our worth from God's love and God's love alone, not from our achievements, not from our failures, not from our characters, not from our goodness, but simply because he loves us, simply because he created us. When we fully embrace that, then the way we view God, the way we connect to others, the way we, the way we view ourselves, everything, all our choices become colored and transformed by that truth. It's interesting to me as I was, um, you know, reading Dr. Brene Brown's research um, on shame and um, what she has discovered over a decade, right? It was so interesting to me that the things that she found are principles that have been in the Bible for thousands of years. And it's so interesting that now science is backing it up and saying, hey, did you know that achievements don't make you happy? Did you know that um, actually self unselfish sacrifice and service is what makes us happy? Did you know that scientifically shame, you know, um, is because of all the things that we're blocking and, and the unconfessed things in our lives? And so I found it very interesting that when Dr. Brene Brown um, after all her years of research, discovered what she calls wholehearted people. What she found was that the, the people who were able to heal from their shame, the people who were able to deal with life's challenges, you know, she found that they had courage. You know the English word for courage comes from the root is cur, which is heart. And so people who have courage are people who can tell their story from their whole hearts that they've, they've got nothing to hide, that they're exposing their whole hearts to say, this is who I am, this is, this is what I am, right? This is what I've done, or this is what I'm going to do. That's courage. And so she calls them wholehearted people. And she um, has found that they have 10 strategies. These wholehearted people have 10 strategies or guideposts um, in how they deal with challenges. And I, I'm, I haven't read her entire book, so I'm sure there may be things that... Um, may be different from what the, what the Christ-centered worldview is. But at least these 10 principles I found really echo what the Bible presents. And so what I've done is I've, I'm sharing the principles with you with some Bible verses and a little bit of commentary. So 10 strategies on how we can live wholeheartedly and, and therefore heal from our shame. First, cultivating authenticity, letting go of what people think. Once we have our worth in Jesus... What others think doesn't matter as much. And that doesn't mean we live carelessly, but that means we don't sit there making our decisions based off of other, pleasing others, right? And here's a few Bible verses. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. Fearing people is a dangerous trap, but trusting the Lord means safety. Whenever you feel shame for something that you've done. Um, you know, when I think about kind of my shameful moments, I, I, you know, I'll have memories of, oh, I can't believe I said that, or I can't believe I did that. And, and it's that shame you feel because, like, well, what do they think of me, right? That's, that's where the shame comes from. What helps is to go in prayer and say, God, this is what I think of myself. This is what they probably think of me. But what do you think of me? I want you to do that next time, to ask God in prayer when you feel that shame, God, what do you think of me? And the answer that God tells us again and again and again in the Bible is, hey, I think you're pretty amazing. 
That's why I died for you. I think you're worthy of me coming and dying for you. I think you're fearfully and wonderfully made. I love you, right? So you have to let that truth wash over you once again. So no matter what you think of yourself and what others think, oh, that's what God thinks of me. And guess what? God knows better than ourselves and others, right? He has the ultimate truth. He has the ultimate reality. And so if God thinks that of me, that is what we have to embrace. Here's the second tip. Cultivate self-compassion. Let go of perfection. And that doesn't mean that we... It, perfection is not the same thing as excellence. Striving for excellence is a good thing. But striving for perfection is very harmful because perfectionism is not saying I want to be really good at this. Perfectionism is saying I have to be really good at this because if not, then I have failed. And I am, it, 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 it erodes your sense of self-worth. And there's a difference. And I love how the Bible tells us, hey... Everyone has sinned, okay? We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And that's not said to beat us up over the heads. That's to give us a reality check. Hey, we all mess up. You are no better than I. I am no better than you. We're all the same. We all are in need of a savior. And that's okay because that's how it is, right? We don't have to be ashamed when we make a mistake like, oh no, what will people think if they know that I dot, dot, dot. Because the truth is, they're probably thinking the same thing. Oh, no, I have to make sure nobody else knows that I dot, 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 right? It's healthy to remember that we are all imperfect, that we are human, that we all struggle, that we all fail. And we have to accept that of each other. I really don't like it when people have this false idea that Christians are hypocrites because they don't live up to the ideal of the biblical standard. Because my response is, nobody lives up to the biblical ideal. But what makes us Christian is we acknowledge that. And we acknowledge that Jesus, therefore, is our Savior. Because we can never earn our salvation. Christ is our salvation. And so we're all messed up. But hey, I believe that Christ is my substitute. And that he's going to help me be better. And yes, there are higher standards. And Christ is going to make me that. He's going to be making more like himself. But let's just accept the fact that we are all human, right? Third, we have to cultivate a resilient spirit where we let go of that numbing and that powerlessness. And I think this is what gives us power as Christians. I just picked a few verses. There's so many, but here's one. There is now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Let me say that again. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. So you have not received the spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we call him Abba, Father. And Abba is like Daddy in the Hebrew, right? We have now a spirit that cries, Daddy, right? There is this trust. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. What this is saying is, right, this cultivating a resilient spirit, is that, you know, in the, you know, if we didn't have Christ, if we didn't have the Spirit, when we do mess up and we feel ashamed, we go into that cycle, that earlier cycle of, you know, 
junk food or whatever and, and Netflix and binge watching, whatever it is. We go into that cycle of numb, numb ourselves, numb the feelings, numb whatever it is that's making us feel bad. And then because we did that, we feel bad and then we do it again, right? So we have that cycle. But here's the beauty of, of having Jesus in our lives that when we realize that, hey, I just failed, I messed up. Wait a second. Christ provides grace. And grace is that wonderful place where failure is okay. And that doesn't mean that, oh, let's now go fail more. But it means failure is not the end. Grace is that wonderful space where failure is part of that learning process. It's part of that scientific process of trial and error. It's part of that um, environment where we get to build character. It's part of that um, space, and, and I always tell this analogy because I love it so much, where you have that tightrope, but there is that net of grace, that safety net. And so then when you fall off the tightrope, you're safe. And you don't have to lie there going, oh, no, I failed, because you can go back up and try again because you know there is safety. Whereas if you don't have that net, there's no way I'm getting back up there, right? There's no way I'm getting back up there. And so God gives us that safety of grace and says, hey, yes, you failed. I forgive you. Go, go try again. And if you fail, it's okay. I've got you. Go back up. Right? Failure is part of the human experience, but what God gives us is the courage to get back up through his Holy Spirit, through grace. Grace says you're not a failure. Grace says you can try again. Grace gives us the courage to become like Jesus over time. Here's the fourth tip. Cultivate gratitude and joy. Let go of that fear of scarcity and dark. The Bible says, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with the full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. When we live in gratitude and we live with that feeling of contentment, then it really offsets all those expectations we have of ourselves, of where we're supposed to be, right? A house for yourself and an investment, at least. Right? We, we let go of that, that constant fear of not being good enough, not having enough. And we can live in the joy of what we already have. Tip number five is cultivating intuition and trusting faith. It's so interesting to me that a secular writer like Dr. Brene Brown actually, in her research to the secular world, promotes this idea of faith, of letting go of certainty. And, of course, the Bible is, is filled with verses about that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Do you ever wonder why God doesn't just show up and prove himself to the world? I wonder that a lot. As a pastor, that would make my job a lot easier, right? Like, why don't you just give someone a vision or a dream or just, boom, do something really miraculous, and then they'll believe, Right? But I believe that one of the reasons God doesn't do that, I mean, to be truth, to be honest, he already did that and people still didn't believe. But there's a reason for that. There's a reason why God doesn't just give you 100% proof. It's because of this very um, reason 
that there is something about faith. There is something about taking a step out in the uncertainty that helps us deal with our shame. That helps us deal with our complex emotions and our um, our acceptance of God. And Dr. Brene Brown found this in her secular research, that there is this letting go of the need for certainty. There is this cultivating faith and hope that is needed in order to be resilient, in order for us to forgive ourselves and others, in order for us to, um, to grasp something that allows us to live in joy. Number six is cultivate creativity. Let go of comparison. It's accepting the fact that each of us are created for something unique. That God has a plan for each of us. And that plan for you might not be God's plan for someone else. So God's plan for them looks really nice. And we're like, oh, why can't I have that? Right? And we compare ourselves to each other all the time. Why can't I have that body? Or why can't I have that job? Or why can't I have, you know, X, Y, Z? But God says to us, hey, I created you. We are God's masterpiece, Ephesians says. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. In other words, he has a unique designed life for each of us. That doesn't mean he's got everything planned out, but that means he's helping to orchestrate your life and that he's helping you to realize that you have unique gifts and talents and that your story might look different from another person's story, but that there is value in your story just as much as everyone else. And that you can be creative in that space that only you can fill. Tip number seven is cultivating play and rest. Letting go of exhaustion as a status of, of symbol and productivity as self-worth. You know, um, over and over again, God told people to rest. He commanded people to rest through the Sabbath. He asked Martha, hey, stop running around doing things, one thing is important. Sit down, learn from me, spend time with me. Over and over again, God repeated that, that recommendation to stop working, stop the busyness of life, right? Productivity for God is not um, something that makes him happy. Spending time with him is what makes him happy, right? Being with him, right? Worshiping him. Number seven is related, cultivating calm and still, letting go of anxiety as a lifestyle. I love this passage that says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Thank him for what all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. You know, Micah's kinder, they have meditation time. Um, and... When I heard, I was like, oh, interesting. Basically, they're, they're told to kind of sit and just sit still. I think, it's, I think it's a teacher's time for like a break. Like break, meditation time. But, you know, at work too, they, they, they um, promote mindfulness. And my, my Apple Watch has like this breathe app that tells you once in a while, take, um, take a minute to breathe, you know. And then there's reason why, again, like I said earlier, uh, in secular society, these biblical principles are coming out because people feel this need, right? That religion is no longer providing because they're either not religious or so heavy. And so then they're coming up with these alternative options. But we have what the Bible calls this time where Jesus says, hey, 
come apart for a little while and just sit with me. It's called prayer and meditation with God, right? Where we ah, relax for a little bit and, and let God's peace wash over our hearts. And so cultivate that calm and still in the middle of your day. Number nine, cultivate meaningful work. Let go of yourself down and you're supposed to. And this is related to what I mentioned earlier, that each of us has a unique life. And so each of us has unique gifts. Um, the Bible talks about how God has given us spiritual gifts. And it says, use them to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Then do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will be bring glory to God through Jesus Christ and all glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. If you don't know what your spiritual gift is, if you're not doing meaningful work, then find it by asking yourself these questions. What are you passionate about? What makes you come alive, right? What is it that when you talk about it, you get really excited? Or what need do you see in the world that calls out to you, that, that you feel like something should be done? And lastly, what are you good at? Okay, so if you ask yourself these questions, you'll be able to find that spiritual gift. And as you work in that space and do what God has gifted you with, you will find meaningful work. And lastly, cultivate laughter, song, and dance. Let go of always being cool and always in control. Um, you know, the people in the Bible weren't somber and serious. The people in the Bible rejoiced. They shouted. They sang. They, they expressed praise to God. This is one example. Miriam, the prophet Aaron's sister, took a tambourine, led all the women as they played their tambourines and danced. And Miriam sang this song, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. And this was as a response to God rescuing them from the Egyptians when they crossed the Red Sea. These are 10 tips, and I know that it's a lot uh, to take on. But the truth is that we're not very good at these things, okay? And so I'm not saying, all right, I've shared the 10, now go do it. In fact, Dr. Brene Brown, um, she shares in her story how she has done research in this. So she knows she's supposed to, you know, do all these things. And she realized that she wasn't, and she, she was really struggling. So she, what she did was she went to a therapist who sees therapists, and she went with the Excel spreadsheet in her hand and said, hey, here are the things that I need fixing. Okay, tips now. <laughs> she said, I don't want to talk about my past. I don't want to talk about my childhood. Don't give me any of that. Just give me tips. Here's my Excel spreadsheet. And let's start with that one. Let's, let's go. <laughs> and she um, said the therapist just kind of looked at her like, really? <laughs> and she said it took a year and a half <laughs> for her to finally realize that that's actually not how you fix things. But and so when I share this with you, I'm not saying, okay, we have to check this off the list and this is the solution. That's not what I'm saying. What I am recommending is that we, we realize that all of, all, these, all of these tips are there to guide us as we struggle, right? They're there to help us realize that this is, this is the way that we can handle challenges. And that key word there was cultivate, meaning that it's a consistent trimming and weeding and watering, right? It's a growth process. But struggling is better than submitting. A very um, well-known quote by U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt says, It is not the critic who counts. It's not the man who sits and points out how the doer of the deed could have done things better and how he falls and stumbles. The credit goes to the man in the arena whose face is marred with dust and blood and sweat. 
But when he's in the arena, at best he wins, and at worst he loses. But when he fails, when he loses, he does so daring greatly. So my challenge is simply to try, right? Get in the arena, struggle, be vulnerable, be open to doing something that makes you uncomfortable, right? Remember that shame is born in secrecy and silence and judgment. So the antidote to that is by speaking out and not necessarily, you know, on Facebook to everybody, but go to someone you trust, right? Ask someone that you, you feel safe with. Hey, say, hey, this is what I'm struggling with. Ask for prayer. Ask for accountability and support. Own your story. And as you own your story, share his story of how he went through shame and failure, but resurrected and now gives us power to overcome our shame and how he has power to transform our shame into his glory. And I pray that as we um, ask God for the courage to be more vulnerable to him and to each other, that we will also create a safe place where we can be that safe place for others and that other people out there who are struggling with shame, right? This world that is so desperate and so hungry for love and belonging will be able to find that sense of worth in God by being with us. Thank you. I'm going to invite Roy up. He's going to um, sing a special item, but if you know the song, feel free to sing along. Um, it's, it's a song that I really love, and it just reminds us um, of our worth in him.